there was a depression that was a depth I hadn't quite felt before. Um, the hallucination and the the fear that I was feeling of loss of control of myself in 2013, that wasn't there, but I felt buried and I needed to unravel and get anything out of me that was a rock weighing me down and it was screaming inside of me. And honestly, it had been for years. I had been asking for support um, from different therapists and uh, psychiatrists for years to kind of talk about my trauma and no one would let me. And that's Katie Steverson on this episode of Time to Sing Your Song. This is a messy conversation, but in the most helpful way. You see, over a five-year period of time, Katie was dealing with postpartum psychosis bookended by two separate pregnancies, including twins in 2017. In Katie's own words, she was bouncing along the bottom, fighting through depression, hallucinations, and a victim mindset. Katie was given a rash of medications to help her get well. However, they seemed to exacerbate her situation, and it wasn't until she met a psychiatrist who, along with her family, helped her get to the other side. What makes this story even more incredible is that Katie was dealing with all of this while acquiring a food service company with her brother. That's also what makes it so relatable. Life doesn't stop just because we are going through something heavy. The story, as you're going to hear, takes a bit of time to unpack. But after listening to our conversation, I concluded that it was important to keep it as is. Sometimes trauma and challenges in life don't unravel in a linear manner. Rather, it bobs and weaves with a series of highs and lows, mostly lows. I want to say that I really appreciate Katie for being so open and vulnerable. You can literally hear the raw emotion and the angst in her voice. It took a lot of courage for her to share her story and advice that she has for others who are going through hell. As you listen, I'd encourage you to think deeply about three questions. First, if you're going through something heavy, are you clearly communicating what you need from your family and friends? And if you have a loved one who is struggling, are you really listening to what they need without putting your own filter on? Second, what medications are you blindly taking that require you to ask more questions or that may not be necessary with lifestyle changes? And finally, what obstacles have you overcome that can help you reach new heights in your life? I'm hopeful that these stories of rock bottom and redemption are helping you through challenges in your life. They are certainly helping me on my journey to being a better person. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to Apple Podcasts and Spotify and give time to sing your song a five-star rating. Please also share your thoughts as well. It really helps in bringing awareness of these awesome stories. Please also share the podcast with your family and friends and colleagues. As I go deeper on this journey, it is becoming clearer by the day that Time to Sing Your Song is a platform for ordinary people to share their stories of how they overcame gnarly obstacles to live a life that they only dreamed about. And what's crazy is the variety of stories that are coming to me. If you have a story or you know someone who does, reach out to me. Easiest way is to send an email to mike at timetosingyoursong.com or you can send me a direct message on social media. Mike Kearney on LinkedIn, 
and mkearney33 on Twitter. Okay, let's get to this raw and emotional conversation. Katie, welcome to Time to Sing Your Song. It is so great to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Katie, take us back a few years ago. I know life was coming at you hard. You had postpartum psychosis. You were prescribed a number of medications, which seemed to, in some respects, make the problem worse. And if you're comfortable sharing, can you tell us your story? Of course. Yeah, it it was a long journey and certainly had some ups and downs I was not prepared for. Um, so yeah, in 2013, I had my second child and came down with postpartum psychosis and was hospitalized. Um, I was on medication for... Uh, many years that worked to keep me kind of functioning. We got pregnant again in 2016 um, when the twins <laughs> were born in spring of 2017. Uh, everything just kind of <sighs> compiled. I, I've heard of obviously postpartum depression seems like postpartum psychosis is is a word that is coming more into our lexicon what what is it like can you describe what it feels like what you go through what it is it's it's a, a massive amount of loss within yourself um the in a way that there's hallucinating attached to it. I I couldn't sleep. When I would close my eyes, images would rapidly kind of um, run across my mind in ways that I didn't even know I could be that creative. <laughs> so, um, And you had nothing like this before you had kids, it sounds like. No, I had never experienced anything of this nature. Um, I was terrified, um, and it would I the the mental health care systems very backed up. I tried to reach out and find you know time with a psychiatrist, and it was two to six weeks out. And when you're spiraling down so quickly, that almost compounds the issue. Um, so when I became so agitated with lack of sleep and the hallucinations when I would close my eyes. I um, actually threw a breast pump across the room when someone said hi to me <laughs> and, and sat in a corner and kind of rocked back and forth and just kind of tugged on my clothing and it was time to go to the ER. And so this was, this almost sounds like it was a daily occurrence. It's not something that would come and go. Is that right? No, I was living in it. And it was just getting worse and worse without any type of intervention. I was hospitalized six days after my second child was born. And so that was in 2017? That was, was in that 2013. The oh, okay. Mm -hmm. That was 2013. Um, in 2017, the twins were born. And I, you know, as much as I called it 
postpartum. I'm sure it was a combination of that. However, I had trauma in my history. And with the twins arriving, going from two to four kids and that level of lack of sleep, um, and then trying to figure out how to financially handle that new load, we were bringing an au pair in from another country who had never been to America. And I was going through kind of learning how to support and teach her and comfort her as she arrives here to care for my kids. Um, I went from two, four to five in less than, yeah, so less than two months of the twins arriving. And I, I just, I think I was in, internally had no space left for anything to hide anymore. How do you balance going through this, the postpartum psychosis with also caring for babies, twins? I mean, in 2017, I, I just reflect back on, you know, our kids and just the stress it put on our lives. And I just can't imagine what it would be like to have something like this with twins and even, you know, going back to 2013, your other, your other child, how do you balance that? Um, you do the best you can. I don't know if you find a balance very quickly. Um, I certainly, there was a difference in the balance in 2013 and 2017. 2013 was staying busy, taking my medication and just apparently I went through some really weird stuff where I wanted to vacuum the house in entirety every single day. So, uh, that was a fun episode of (laughs) maternity leave. However, in 2017, it was, it was not as, um, not as strategic. It was really, I, I was falling apart and balancing was not even an option. I, I don't, I was lost. Did it get better at all in between 2013 and 2017? Meaning when your child, I guess was one or two before you had the twins, did you start to feel better and then it came on again or was it kind of always there? I was on medicine. Um, I felt better. Of course, I didn't have a psychosis. I had lost parts of myself, but I was functioning and... um, not waking up with that anxiety um, when you're in depression that that you can wake up with, which starts your day off in a really dreadful space. Um, The I would just, I would just say I could function. And then you, and then you get pregnant with twins. And it sounds like then it really started to come on again, I guess, if you will, or become more problematic. It did. It became quite problematic in a way that between the depression aspect. So there wasn't any hallucinating. There was a depression that was a depth I hadn't quite felt before. Um, the hallucination and the the fear that I was feeling of loss of control of myself in 2013, that wasn't there. But 
I felt buried and I needed to unravel and get anything out of me that was a rock weighing me down and it was screaming inside of me. And honestly, it had been for years. I had been asking for support um, from different therapists and uh, psychiatrists for years to kind of talk about my trauma and no one would let me. They'd want me to be stable on medicine first before I could talk about it. And it was this always this same scenario. Um, I need to talk about my trauma. Well, we can't talk about your trauma until you're stable. And I'd say, well, I'm not stable <laughs> because of my trauma. So I'm not really getting anywhere. So in 2017, just with all of the new responsibility that there was there was no escaping. And I know that might sound like a really horrible thing to say, but that's how it felt at the time. And of course, I didn't want to escape my life. It was just a lot of weight when you're carrying so much baggage and having the, you know, kind of chemical depression aspect added to it. I want to go back to a couple of things that you said. You said, I needed to unravel. That's the first thing. And then you said that um, your doctors kept telling you that you needed to stabilize before you could address the trauma. When you say I needed to unravel, what do you mean by that? There was so much information and history buried inside of me um, that I, I needed to tell someone about it. I needed to get it out and untangle it. And I, I needed it to not live inside of me anymore. And their whole proposition was, okay, but you need to be stabilized, which is obviously predicated on medication. God, that must feel like you're kind of like, there's no way out, if you will, because you're now needing to take probably a variety of different medications so that you could get to a point where they're comfortable, but you're feeling like, no, I actually need to talk. How did that make you feel at the time? Lost when I was already lost. Um, like you really weren't being supported? Definitely. By the doctors? Um, yeah, I felt so alone and, and, and just, just, I, I would just repack it away for a little while until it came up again. But, like, like you mentioned, multiple medications. Uh, in 2013, actually, there was a, kind of a hole of time where the FDA um, allowed kind of anti-anxiety medications to go on auto-repeat. So that's when I was in the hospital for the, the postpartum psychosis, and I was given um, Ativan on a repeat autofill, and they were free. So when I would go pick up my, my antidepressant medicine, it would automatically fill my anxiety medicine and it would go in the bag and I'd pick it up. And I, I forgot every time because it was just auto refill and free. And I'd be like, okay, whatever. So I had this plethora of medicine in my cabinet as well, which comes into play later <laughs> in 2017. It's amazing. I mean, basically this is a real life example well, at least this is my opinion, or this is my hunch, maybe is a better way of saying it, but a real life example of 
kind of this over medication, if you will, without even really asking any questions where the doctor is continuing to give you medication, which maybe you didn't even feel like you needed at the time. Uh, but because you were there, you took it, you went home and then you put it into your cabinet. You probably used it. Absolutely. I mean, there was a statement in 2013 that I couldn't go home to my family if I wasn't willing to take the anti-anxiety medicine. Um, and, and, and I had concerns over it because of what I had read about it being so addictive. Um, and, and I wanted to breastfeed. And they said, it's right. just not an option. You cannot leave here unless you're willing to take it. Um, so I just felt powerless in every single way. And when you're in those facilities, I'd say that is the most options I had. Most of the time they, you know, they're just going to give you what they want to give you. And I experienced that in 2017 um, in my very public breakdown which led me to a facility um, that I ended up staying in for a few days again. And I was put on a black labeled medication without my knowledge that it had been black labeled in the market. So do you mind sharing what the breakdown was? Absolutely. I was tired of being told I couldn't talk about my trauma. Um, and I was explaining this to my brother and he said, you know, I heard a podcast that stated you can't, you just can't let it be in there. You've got to get it out even if nobody wants to hear it. So I went home that day um, to an empty house and I recorded a video on my phone for 10 minutes talking about my trauma, took a deep breath and posted it on Facebook. And I figured if no one was going to listen, everyone was going to listen. What did you record? What was the content? Um, it was about my, uh, a violent relationship I was in for six and a half years and some of the things I experienced within it. So you're, in many respects, taking that message that you wanted to share with your doctor and because they wouldn't listen to it, you put it onto your phone and then you put it on Facebook. I did. What was the reaction? It was such overwhelming love and support. It went and touched so many people. And still to this day, I'll get messages about how people don't feel alone. And I didn't realize how many people won't even fight for someone to listen until then. And I had a lot of support and a lot of people looking to me for support as well in camaraderie in their situations and just being able to be there for other people and know they, we were feeling the same things helped me not feel so alone not feel so buried in a way. And I was pointed in the direction of a facility that could do outpatient care. And with two-month-old infants and an au pair coming, I thought I'd go and see if I could do the, you know, 
an outpatient thing where I went for eight hours a day and came home, went for eight hour days and came home for about a week. And through the intake process, I was asked to stay that I was, it would be dangerous for me to go home. I was of danger to myself. So you were thinking this was just going to be going in for the day, coming home at night, you know, life would be fairly normal. But then when they saw you, they said, probably makes sense for you to stay here. Right. So in 2013, I'm like, I am of danger to myself. Yeah. I'm afraid I'm going to snap and not know what I'm going to do next. Um, I need help. And in 2017, I was like, I'm, I'm okay. I know I'm not good. I just need some support to figure this out. And they're like, oh, no, no. <laughs> oh, no. You cannot go home. So how long were you in the facility? Probably, I think it was about four days. About four days. And you'd go to the window and they'd give you a cup of pills. A couple times a day. You don't really even know. I don't even really recall what it was. Um, or if mm -hmm. I was told what it was. Um, probably. I'm, I'm not certain. But I do know Ativan was in it. Um, so the anti medicine was given to me twice a day immediately um and then I was put on Cymbalta without much background or uh, you know option I'm sure I could have said why well, I want a different option but it I don't know you really in those moments you need someone who gives you choice or gives you options. And I do understand a lot of times those doctors' hands are tied. So you go into this facility. I was thinking the direction of the conversation was, this is what your bottom moment was. And from here, life was great. But it sounds like to a certain degree, and I may be wrong, but it exacerbated the problem. <laughs> it was my, my skip on the bottom before I landed <laughs> face first. <You're> so, <laughs> so that's a great metaphor. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was like trial rock bottom, you know? Okay. So, um, I go home, I'm on this medicine and I start losing myself in a way that in the sense of, well, I've got an au pair here that I'm responsible for. I have twins. Um, I have two older kids. I'm, working on a purchase of a company. There's so many things going on that there was no one place to pinpoint what was happening to me. Um, but I, I, I was like eating in my sleep, gaining tons of weight, couldn't wake up in the morning. And while I seemed outside of all of those issues and the cognitive decline that I was experiencing, to all accounts, I was getting up and doing life and going to work, but silently and without anyone knowing, I would drive to work every day and fantasize about letting the wheel go and just going to sleep. And it was a place that I had never been before, even, even in six and a half years of very traumatic and scary experiences, I had never not wanted to live in that way, but I was just so tired and wanted to give up. I want to get to how 
you skipped and what the real rock bottom and, and where you came back. But I just want to pause for a second because you said something. I just want everybody to recognize this. You had a very senior job. Maybe talk about that because not only are you navigating, you know, twins and you have a young one as well, and you're going through all of this and now you have an au pair, but, but you've got a demanding job as well. Can you just touch on that briefly? I want to talk about your life now in a bit, but, but I just want to put all of this into context. Of course. Yes. We, we own a, uh, my brother and I now own a food service company that our grandparents founded. At the time, um, our father was in ownership and I held a senior level position and he was transitioning out. Um, so in between 2017 and 2018, my brother and I um, purchased the company from him and transitioned. I mean, holy shit. Let me just pause there. Holy shit. It's not like, you know, you're just going through this and you don't have work-related responsibilities, but you're, now you're also buying your dad's company, which probably is more important than just buying anybody else's company. And you're having to navigate this. And even though you thought you, thought you found, you know, the way out through this facility, now you're finding yourself skipping on bottom, having suicidal thoughts, it sounds like. So what then happened? I, I, I'd, I'd a few times throughout the year, I had like family meetings where I'd bring in my husband or my mom and I'd say something's wrong. I don't know what it is, but I'm not okay. And I'd kind of be looking for, (laughs) I, I think what I was looking for was not just support, but the right to fall apart and break down and someone just take charge and go slay this dragon of medicine and depression. And, you know, they were really great about sitting there and listening. And then it was just like, you know, at the end, okay, break and smack in the hands. And and it felt like everyone else was just going on about their life. And I'm like, okay, like, I guess I have to keep going. Um, It was a lot of pressure. There's, I think there's a lot of positives to it, but then there's the negatives to it as well. I mean, I had a lot of people counting on me, but I had a lot of people counting on me. So it's one of those double-edged swords that without it, who knows what, how everything would have played out. It's all part of the recipe. However, um, after a couple of those meetings, I started doing research online And I found a psychiatry practice in another state that started doing um, DNA testing for seeing how medicines interact with your system and reached out to them and went and visited them and, and did it. I want to, I want to find out how they helped you, but you said something and especially I've been kind of in the world of, you know, dysfunctional families, people with trauma and problems, but I've never heard this concept that you raised. And I have a question that I want to ask you about it. You said, I was looking for the right to fall apart, which is almost like I'm looking for permission to get well. Do you think everybody understood that that's what you were asking for? Probably not. I I don't I don't know what 
they might have, they might not know, have known how to provide that for me. Um, and honestly, I don't think anyone can ever give anybody the right to do that. You just have to take it. Yeah. I, um, I'm trying to put myself in their position because, you know, they're probably fairly well, you're going through hell and this is where your mind is at. And I guess, I guess the question I would have for you is, is if you were that family member that is being reached out to, what would you tell them? Like, what would you, not your family, cause I'm sure they were doing everything they could to help you. What would you tell that family member to do in that circumstance where somebody is, you know, looking for the right to fall apart? I've had a few instances where I've had, I have had the ability to speak with a few family members and one of the, one of the common threads that I can think of is they tend to want to do things for them, like cook them meals, fold right. their laundry, these, these temporary reliefs. And it's so very, I don't want to undermine that um, because it is huge. However, I explained to them from a very intimate place that just makes it worse because that's going to pile back up because we're dealing with symptoms, not the problem. So I always advise them to sit with that person and ask them, what do you think the best next step would be? And just help them with that. Yeah. I think that's interesting because just putting myself in, in their position once again, you know, they probably don't want to see you fall apart because that's potentially the worst case scenario in their mind. And maybe, well, I'll say I may not recognize the fact that that's actually a necessary step in order for the person to get better. Yeah. It's scary to think of your loved one in that much pain and to visibly see it as well. Um, Absolutely. And there's a lot of discomfort in our society with allowing someone to be that broken and not trying to fix the symptom and just supporting them through the process. You talked a few minutes ago about the psychiatry practice in another state that you found, which sounded like it really helped you. Can you talk about that? Oh, it helped me so much. I received my report and found out that the medicine I was on was toxic to my system. So not only was it black labeled, it was toxic to my system. So in in trying to explain this to my family, I was again silently expecting them to go, okay, let's go, (laughs) you know, let's go do this. And it was just kind of an information session again. And um, I started learning how people were dying, coming off of the medicine, how there wasn't even safe protocol within rehabs to come off of it. And I really spent time evaluating myself, what I wanted, the risk of trying to do that and how to do it. And um, for a few months, I just thought through it and figured I'm going to come up with a plan for this. I'm a fixer, it sounds like. I'm going to fix it. (laughs) I'm going to fix fix this girl. Yeah. 
Stupid question. What is black? I think I know just based on the language, but what is black label medicine? What is so if I, re- if I recall correctly in researching it, it's one, it's, it's what's wild for me is that it's still on the market. Um, it has so many risks and it's not yeah. advised. It's not advised to give. Mm, even though it's still out there. Correct. Interesting. So the, the psychiatrists tell you you're on a bunch of medicines that aren't doing you any good. And it sounds like then you're in this mindset of, okay, I need to fix this. What did you do to get off of those medicines? So, um, the doctor was explaining, let's, it also provided information about different like markers in my brain that were mutated, um, Mm. and functioning kind of. I don't want to say differently. There's really no normal, uh, but just the way that my brain works. And I even found out how I landed in postpartum at such depths. There's this phenomenal system within our bodies. And there's this thing called uh, chemical and hormone memory. Mine is mutated. So when I had to switch from my ovary to my thyroid, my thyroid forgot how. So all of my hormones depleted. So it, it was really nice to get that logical data that I'm not a broken human being, that I didn't cause this. It wasn't because I wasn't good enough. It was all these other factors that biologically it just was what it was. So that was healing within itself and kind of gave me a little, little of my power back. Um, the doctor was really great with that information stating, okay, let's start some vitamins So we were building this plan to come off the medicine as safely as possible. So um, he worked with like all the vitamin aspect of folic acid would help me with my serotonin levels and working out would help with the taking in the serotonin. So we started building this holistic plan to give me the safe, the safety net of coming off of the medicine. And um, it almost sounds like there's like more there. So you were building this plan and then what happened? <laughs> oh man, I hit rock bottom. <laughs> okay. So this is, this is where the, uh, the pebbles stopped bouncing. It is. So I, I felt so alone, so dismissed and unheard for so long from so many different places. And I think I was just tired of doing life every day in a way that kept everyone else okay. And we, my husband and I went out of town for a friend's wedding. And of course there was drinking. Um, and everyone was having a great time. I blacked out that night in our hotel room. And so you're still on the medication at that point in time. And then you're, and you're drinking, I can assume based on your comment. Correct. Yep. I was drinking. I should not have been, but I wanted to feel normal, like have a little bit of fun. I was kid free. We had a hotel. We were with our friends and I just wanted to feel free. Um, I'm, I'm sure it compounded the medication issues and I blacked out. And when I woke up the next morning, I saw my husband 
with scratches all over him and the hotel room was destroyed. You don't remember being part of that? No, there's, there's moments that I remember, but from the moment I, I guess, became angry, aggressive and destructive to when I woke up locked behind the bathroom door with a bottle of pills in my hand. I don't remember any of it. And I apparently had pulled the, um, the bar that holds the curtains off of the wall and was hitting him with it, trying to fight him, yelling at him. I guess I was taking everything out on him and how alone I felt. I'm curious to hear how you, you came back from this. But what I'm trying to reconcile is it sounds like when you found a psychiatrist out of your state, you were working on this plan to get you back and then something went awry. What happened? Why, why was that not sufficient at that time to help you kind of heal? It almost seems like it, it, it got worse. What do you think was behind that? It had been almost a year at that point. And when you're begging for help for that long and, and longer, I mean, I've, I've been begging for help from professionals for years. Um, and so even though you were getting the help at that moment in time from that psychiatrist, it, it didn't feel enough, sufficient, what, what, was, what was not working? I had swallowed so much loneliness and not understanding why no one was jumping in and taking Mm -hmm. the wheel of this entire situation that the alcohol took all of the, all of the inhibition, all of the, all of the plan. It just, I guess it just fueled the pain and the fear and the feeling of being abandoned for so long. I think that the reason why I'm raising this is it's almost like we can get to a point where we begin to see what the answer is. But it sounds like what you're saying is there were so many years of where you felt like you weren't being heard that that rage came out in this moment, you know, when you were still on your medication, you had been drinking. So even though you may have the solution in front of you, that may not be sufficient. At least that's what I'm hearing. Is that, is that true? Yeah, it didn't feel efficient. And I still hadn't started coming off my medicine. Like there still wasn't a plan to come off my medicine. I'm still spending months building vitamins. So I was getting so frustrated because I was still so uncomfortable every moment of every day in my skin. What you're saying is like we were building up to get me off the medicine, but it hadn't started yet. And that was frustrating you. Yes. And there was this anger inside of me that everyone was going about their day and their life like everything was okay unless I would call a meeting. So I didn't realize at the time that everyone going about their day was their way of fighting for it all. So Katie, you trashed the hotel room 
and you're hitting your husband. Can you elaborate on what happened? Uh, at some point, I blacked out in the evening. Um, and I'm aware of what I did only because of asking my husband eventually when he was ready to share with me what happened. However, looking at the hotel room and looking at my husband the next morning, it was clear that I had lost it. Um, and it was a devastating scene. It matched my insights. How did that, how did that feel in the moment? I mean, did you feel like this was your opportunity to get well? Did you know that this was your, your low moment? I don't know if I was in a place for any level of that kind of reflection. It was just mm. what I do recall was there was no blaming anyone else any longer. Interesting. There was no blaming so life circumstances, people for not showing up. Like I had allowed it to get to a place where I really hurt the person I love so much in this world and I had not a scratch on me. So what did you do then? My mom contacted a family friend who's a doctor and they gave her rehab facility information. I spent the next 24 hours waiting. Um, when we got home, my husband took our oldest son to the movies and I laid in the living room floor with the twins and our toddler and I just felt pain and I knew I had to let him go do that, but I still felt such pain being left with the kids at such a rock bottom. Um, mm. Kind of getting the information from my mom about a couple different rehabs and staring at about 60 to 90 days should I choose to go to one of those spaces. Um, and this was summer of 2018. So we it just packed up everyone the following morning. So about almost 48 hours later, our au pair, my husband, I said, I said to everyone, I was like, we're going to my mom's. Now, this was not a massive trip. She's 10 minutes down the street. <laughs> so yeah. I, I guess subconsciously I knew what I was staring down the, the lane to do, but we all went to my mom's and um, we kind of spent the day there. I don't know if we were licking our wounds. My mom took the kids swimming. And when we sat there at night around the dinner table, I, my hand hit the table and I said, that's it. That's it. There's no more. There's no more. The kids are going to go swimming. There's, there's no more. We need a plan. I need a plan. And the plan needs to start in minutes. So my God love my mom. She looks at me, she goes, okay, what do you want to do? And I sat there for a minute and I said, the kids and I need to stay here. We need to stay here for as long as I need. I said, I'm not going into a facility because at this moment, I'm only a harm to myself. Whenever I've left my kids, I was potentially a harm to them. I cannot leave my kids again. 
So if there's no safe way to do this in a hospital, I'm not leaving them. So, but I need the ability, if I'm agitated or angry, to put on my tennis shoes and walk out the door and go running without any questions or anything. My husband worked pretty demanding hours, um, and I couldn't put that level of pressure on our au pair. It was already hard enough to live in a home with us, I'm sure, going through so much postpartum and medication issues. What held you back from just going to a facility on your own? It sounds like you were saying that you potentially were more harm. Why was that the case? When I had the postpartum, I was afraid of the way I was losing myself, Mm. Um, losing my sanity in a way that was, I couldn't understand it. Um, And I was afraid because of how fast I was spiraling and hallucinating and losing weight and all of not sleeping at night that I was afraid of what if this is what the women feel before they snap and hurt their kids. So what I was feeling in the summer of 2018 was the need for change, the need to take the stuff that that was going on inside my body and rid myself of it. And it, it was a different pain. And it was one that I was aware that I wasn't going to hurt my kids and that I had control. Mm. Now, I hurt everyone around me. Not physically, other than my poor husband. But, uh, man, but the, I said this to my mom, my kid, I might not be an addict by choice, but my kids have been living with an addict. Because what no one else knew was, while I was miserable, I started taking that Ativan that had built up in my cabinet because I needed my body was in agony on that medicine so it became multiples at a time and the one thing I feel as though maybe should have been the biggest red flag to my family was that I started sleeping in my closet on the floor in a ball but that's neither here nor there so still it still sounds like you're you're struggling because now you're at your mom's house she's there to help you with the kids so that you can you know, find free time if necessary. How did you find your way out of all of this? So I decided that every Tuesday I would drop 10 milligrams and give my body a week to adjust. And you're doing that on your own. That's, that's not like medically supervised. That was your idea of dropping 10 milligrams or how did you come up with that? Um, I had weaned, I had been weaned off the previous medications However, the way that they, the, the, the system tends to wean you is they put you on a low dose of the new medicine while you're on the old antidepressant medicine. You let that build in your system and then you reduce slowly your milligrams um, of the previous antidepressant. So I've, I've gone through a wean. That was a highly aggressive wean, but I, I looked at it as I have one summer. Because we own a food service that feeds schools and daycares. And I had a big responsibility on my shoulders as a brand new CEO of a company that really needed some 
solution-based thinking for some pretty big problems. And um, I figured I had one summer. I, I think that that's so unbelievable because once again, when people are listening to this, they're hearing somebody going through the most horrific five years that somebody could go through. And here you are talking about, I'm going to wean myself off of all these medications and I need to do it in three months because I'm the CEO of a company and our busy season starts in September. Correct. That's, oh my God, that's so heavy. Okay. So you're, you're weaning yourself off. How did that go? Ooh, it was hell. So by Thursday, um, I really feel, you know, a compounding interest of the wean. I had every withdrawal symptom, not sleeping at night, um, anxious, racing mind, um, blisters all up and down my body. Um, it, it and was, I think, what, I think what people don't, well, maybe not all people, but I think a lot of people don't realize the only way out, there's really two options to make it out is you make it to the end, which is not easy. Cause like you said, you're up all night, you've got uh, body aches, you know, everything that goes through withdrawal or you start taking the medication again. How did you, how did you manage to do that? Cause that's not easy. I thought about, I just kept thinking about what I did to my husband mm. and what I must be doing to my children. And while I guess I didn't have a lot of love for myself at the time, the love I had for them, to me, my pain was necessary so that I could stop putting them through agony. You had something to live for. I, I did. I did. And I had something to hurt for. You had something to hurt for. So did you make it through? Meaning, were you able to wean yourself off the, off the medication or I'm sure based oh, on how the story goes, there's probably another, <laughs> there's something else that's going to happen, was, right? I, 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 I did a great job. I will say like, I did a really great job when it came to the last 10 milligrams and there was nothing else going in my system by Thursday, I was ready to claw my skin off and it was a sensation. I had, I, I don't, I, there's no words for it. Um, literally the thought of getting my nails under my skin and peeling it that seemed felt better than the sensation of it under my skin. So I, Luckily, because I had this progressive psychiatry practice that I was working with, I texted him and told him what I was doing. And he wrote back immediately. He said, You're, you've done what? He said, I'm in a rehab facility. I'm going to FaceTime you at five when I get out of here today. So at five, he FaceTimed me and we're talking. And I told him everything that happened in the hotel room, what I had been up to the past few weeks. And, and and he said, oh my gosh, I can't believe you did this. He goes, but you did it and we're here and we're going to deal with what we've got in front of us now. So what I really loved about him is he was always super encouraging. He never told me like, you shouldn't have done that. Or, you know, he, I'm sure there was ways that I put him at risk and he never made me feel like I did. Mm. Um, and he, he started explaining to me, we need to go on an anti-seizure medicine. And I flipped out. I was like, no more medicine. I can't take it. I'm tired of being on medicine. 
it's ruined my life. And he, he said, I understand that, but we need to talk. He said, you, you will not survive. You will die. And he also in that conversation found out that I was also taking four and five out of van at a time and coming off of that medicine is the catalyst of like, you'll, you'll die. You will seizure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. Can you talk about the risk of seizure? So I guess what I was experiencing was all of my nerve endings being kind of activated because my brain's going, you need that medicine. You're, you need it. You need that medicine. Or you're going to, I think our system very much tries so hard to protect us that the level of agony I was in was my brain sending every pain signal to every nerve ending to take that medicine because it, your brain, your brain will overwhelm and you seizure. And what happens, I could seizure driving. I could seizure, um, and hit my head on the counter. I could seizure carrying one of my babies and land on her and seizure on top of her. Like I could have, I was a harmed to myself and other people in a way I didn't realize. Um, and so the, the medicine that he wanted me to go on was called gabapentin. And, and he says, Oh, well, we'll just start with a low dose of like 600 milligrams, like 600 milligrams. Low dose. Oh, and I said, okay, he called it in. My mom ran up the street and got it. And I'd say within an hour, I yawned for the first time. And, months and my mom like tears rolled down her face watching me yawn um it was still a long journey he explained to me that i'd have to wean off the gabapentin eventually and i had blisters on my body for months after um that and he never made me go back on any of the medicine like i was so grateful that he didn't reverse anything for me he just gave me support moving forward um so then he explained like, okay, we have a year of brain chemistry to settle down. So I had another year where my brain chemistry had been by these medicines so much that he's like, You're, it's going to be about a year before you feel truly yourself again. Um, so this doctor saved your life. He did. He did. And I'll be forever grateful for him because he was really a great space for me every time. What was different about him than all of the other doctors you had seen? Oh, that's such a great, great question. Um, he was around my age. And so he had a very progressive, like mental health doesn't work uh, on a, on a calendar. Like you've got to have a cell phone that is for your patients and he really urged me to make sure that I didn't feel bad contacting him when I was in a bad place. And I was quite concerned, like, what about your family and your life? And he said, I have a cell phone for this. It's not my personal cell phone. If any, you know, if I'm having downtime, I make sure everyone has, you know, the, the other person's cell phone that can take over. He said, but it works out where you're in a big need. My other clients might not be. And, when you aren't, they might be, and somehow it works. So just mm -hmm. knowing that there was a safety net there all the time, I think it really helped uh, to have someone knowledgeable that 
that was kind of, you know, progressive in their new aged approach to these things. There are a few things that really jump out. I mean, one is that he was just there for you. And Mm -hmm. in those moments when he was there for you, he didn't feel judgmental. Mm, Correct. And so I think that's so very important. It's interesting because I've had several folks on recently that have gone through um, different medical scares, conditions, and it feels like in many respects, you need to find the doctor that works for you. And oftentimes it's not going to be the first one and that you need to take it upon yourself to find that individual because they could be key in saving your life, whether it's, you know, an addiction situation like this, or, you know, I had somebody on that had brain cancer. I had somebody that, you know, had a child that had some intestinal issues and invariably there's two things that keep popping up. And that is to go be maniacal about finding the right help and then not settling. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. So life starts to get better for you. It sounds like, is there anything that happened after that, that you think is important to share? Absolutely. Um, it was, I think it's important to share that there's no quick fix, that it's one thing after another and really focusing on um, what seems like small things and just doing that for a while. Um, like What's a small of, thing, for example? So, for example, the weight that I had gained through all of it was making me feel a lot of pain in my body and just my confidence was low because of it. So I had a lot of things that I was doing that was still contributing to it. And I said, okay, well, I'm not going to just go on some weird crash diet. That's that always yo-yos backwards. I'm just going to work on this like addiction. I've come to soda just, and I worked really hard at that and I found, I found a substitute. So bubbly shout out bubbly was so, (laughs) (laughs) it was such a great like carbonation and flavor of, uh, the fruit in it. It was such a great substitute and I had tried lots of other kind of tonic waters and I'm like, "Ah, I can't do it. So I think I spent like a year just ending soda. So there goes 15 pounds over a year. Um, and it was, it was, it was small steps and it's still small steps. It's mindfulness, remembering gratitude, positive self-talk, um, finding meditation, educating myself, learning how the brain works, how the body works, um, kind of normalizing my experiences has been the most powerful thing for me just feeling like I, I'm not alone. It's not just me. And I'm not this horrible person for not being able to handle the things that have happened. Um, and it gave me my, my power back in a way that I, I'm not in control. Like I don't feel like I'm controlling everyone around me, but I feel powerful and I feel grateful. Not to trivialize the amount of work that you had to put in after you had this breakthrough, but It's interesting that oftentimes it comes down to many of these things to improve kind of our, our mindset, maybe our spirituality, our physical well-being that you started to put into place, you know, whether like you indicated meditation, mindfulness, get rid of the crappy sugar that you were putting in your body, you know, every day with, with, um, 
with sodas, but, but really pursuing a path of getting well beyond just getting off the medication. And it sounds like that was critical to, you know, really taking the next step in your journey to getting better. So critical. And it is, it's mind, body, soul. It is an entire thing. And there's no, there's no right or wrong answer. It's, it's every, every recovery is so unique and it's so personal and, and it's so important. And there's a piece for me that I still work on. And that was very important for me is to become a safe space for the people I've hurt. Um, and to not shy away from how anything I've experienced or what I didn't know before I knew better, what it caused those around me. So I encourage my husband, I encourage my children, I need them to come to me if there's ever anything I said or did or made them feel. I need them to bring that to me so I can listen and apologize and, and put myself in their shoes and show up for them. And I think that's going to be a lifelong journey. But it's, we're in a great place because of all of it and because of them, because they, because they never left. I, I underestimated how much just staying is powerful. Oh, they loved you. What other habits have you created to get to where you are now? So I started, thanks to my husband, listening to audiobooks. Um, so educating myself is, it's a really great way for me to stay on the journey. And someone said to me once, um, if you're not working on it, you are falling behind. And it's a very powerful statement because it's true, because unless we are mindful and we make our our values known and our values a priority it is very easy to get lost in the very complicated spectrum of being human um what are you working on now so one of the this is this is a super fun one so my husband and i have a relationship and communications coach who works with like she's very, very well-versed and certified in attachments theory and attachment styles. So we see her once a week and I swear it feels like date night for both of us every week. Mm. <laughs> and we, it's brought so much more like love and patience and understanding and um, just allowing each other to be human and support each other and allowing our kids to be more human and just stripping those societal conditionings that all of us have. And um, we're rarely working on just, I'm, I'm in a, I'm in, I'm no longer in a deficit. I'm in like, I'm, I'm like depositing and, and overflowing and we're just keeping that energy going excited to go back to listen to this conversation because you almost could feel the weight coming off of you in the last five or 10 minutes as you've talked about, you know, getting well and doing all these things to take your mental and physical well-being to the next level, you know, uh, what you're doing with your husband, with this coach. I mean, it's like there is this positive energy that's radiating, which I love. 
So what else are you excited about in life right now? So I actually just completed um, school at IPEC and I have become a life and leadership coach as well. And it's, it fills my cup. So I'm able to bring all of this really great new knowledge and uh, communication skills to my company. And I'm enjoying um, connecting people to their work and their team in new ways. And I'm just, it's refreshed. It's helped be a huge part of refreshing the relationships that I've fractured and really see how normal it is to be abnormal. So it's it's just really normalized being human and I'm able to bring that every day in life to everyone else. The company's thriving. My husband and I are so much more in love. We've always loved each other, but it's just really a safe space for both him and I now. And I think we're kind of basking in that. And we're still, we're, we also are aware, like there's still work to do. That's why we still um, see our coach every week because there's always more to learn and uh, support and grow. And we're watching our kids grow and thrive and um, finding new ways to give them their power at age appropriate levels. <laughs> age appropriate yeah <laughs> yeah so we're 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 all moving forward my husband's going for his dreams and he's killing it and and i love supporting him i just love that we're all in a thrive state love it is is your coaching that you're now doing so now that you're certified is that part of your recovery process do you think in some ways in some ways um i think the recovery process was important because it started it really started with, well, if Mike in the education, the education and recovery process, because I'm going, well, if my kids are going to learn how to care for themselves by watching the way I care for myself, why don't I make myself a bowl of fresh fruit when I make everyone else in the house every time? So that moment where I was like, I'm going to make myself a bowl of fresh fruit just so that they will when they're older, it sparked this whole thing that during COVID, I got, I kept thinking about that bowl of fruit and, and while my company was food service and COVID man, you know, really um, was challenging times. And I'm going, well, what do I want? What makes me happy? What has made me happy recently? And being able to be there for other people and see them and then feel seen um, really filled my heart up with a lot of energy. And I thought I'm going to, I'm going to go find a way to do that. And that that's going to be my bowl of fruit. Um, so it's just, it's, it all kind of just becomes this tapestry you've been building and each thread is so important, even if you don't know what threads coming next, but they're just all so interconnected. Yeah. I love that. When you reflect on this journey, I'd be curious what you would share with others that would benefit from your experience. And you could take this in a lot of different ways. And quite frankly, this could be a conversation on its own because you could share advice that you have for the person that, you know, potentially is going through uh, postpartum depression, psychosis. You could share it with somebody that's had an addiction challenge. You could share advice to family members that are dealing with somebody in that situation or even in the recovery phase. So when I ask that question, like what, 
what advice do you have for others? What comes to mind? And, and once again, you could take it from many different perspectives. Just silence cannot be an option. It, Say more. It, I'd like I'd like for people to understand that. It, keep asking for help. Keep making yourself important verbally. And this is in many different contexts you're given this advice because you did say early on, you know, I was trying to tell everybody that I needed help, but, but either I wasn't verbalizing it in the right way or people weren't hearing me. And it sounds like in the context of addiction, what you're saying is you got to be really clear on the help you need. I think in any of it you do. Yeah, Mm. you're correct. I think in any of it you do because there's this other quote I've heard, find someone who's walked the coals before you. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that is the moment someone can see exactly where you are on the coals and know how, really know how to help you find your next few steps kind of faster. So it is you finding your next steps, but you need someone there that understands in, in my, in my opinion, in my experience you know, if you're a quarter of the way through and, and they can see it, it, there's this, if you've been there, you can see where they are in their journey with a few words or a look, there's this understanding. Yeah. I mean, I hear two things there. One is you have continued to allude to this whole notion of you're responsible for your path, um, which I believe more than anything in this world. But I think you also are saying, find the people that have gone, you know, through the journey that you're currently on because they can help you. So while there is this notion of you're responsible for your path, uh, you can accelerate a lot if you get the help from somebody who's got the experience. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And we are responsible for our own journey. However, we are also responsible for the people that we engage as support. So Katie, you've talked a lot about this proclivity, I guess, to fight in the moment, like shit goes sideways and you're like, I'm going to fight. But I know that this is also something that you've been working on so that you're not always fighting when stuff goes sideways. I'd love to hear about kind of your learning from this and maybe what you're doing nowadays to remove yourself from the fight before it even happens. Absolutely. Um, I had been stuck for a long time in this space of, I have a really long fuse. And if someone keeps pushing on it and pushing on it and pushing on it, eventually my fuse runs out. So it always felt, I always felt vindicated um, when it was like that fuse ran out. When in, in reality, what I've had to look at is, okay, there's, there's fight, flight, or freeze. And in those um, moments where thought is is no longer um, there, we're in a primitive mental state, I am a fight. So becoming very aware of that and um, being honest about that and then realizing that once I get to that point where my my fuse is 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 no longer available, i've I've lost my right to choice. 
So for me, learning that where my triggers are, what what I start to feel like at the beginning of, of an escalation, because there's always multiple, there's typically, I don't want to say the word always, there's typically multiple steps in most scenarios. So my my true power comes in when I go, okay, I'm beginning to escalate, so let's table this. Or I'm going to go um, do some self-soothing that I've been learning how self-soothing can help that and and journaling or just taking a breath and some deep breaths and coming back to the table um, uh, with clarity. It's been very important. I have a follow-up question because you used a word that I find fascinating because I think I've been in this position before. It's like you have this long fuse and then you get to the end of it and you feel like it's okay for you to fight because you've been trying to do the right thing. Like you're vindicated. So when you're able to remove yourself from that situation and, and use techniques like, you know, meditation or breathing or whatever it is you do, self-soothing, I think you said, how do you, how do you get over this notion of like, I've been wronged the word vindicated is like, I'm in the right, like I can fight and I'm totally justified. So how do you get comfortable with this idea of being vindicated? using this different technique? So it's a great question. Using this different technique isn't to like cement us in right or wrong because there's only perspectives. So this technique is important because if if we come back to the table with I am right, we're going to land there over and over again. And it's it's an exercise. It takes time. It's no different than lifting weights uh, to build our muscles. Is you 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 step back to go. What am I missing? How is this serving us or the group? And if it's not, what questions do I need to ask to understand more of their perspective? How are you better equipped to navigate setbacks? Like you talked about. COVID you ran or you run a food service business. So that was obviously not an easy time for you. Schools were shut down. Uh, You probably had to change your business model. How do you think this experience, this very long experience helped you be better equipped to navigate those type of challenges in the future? Overcoming some pretty scary places. Um, it made me realize that there's always something more to learn. And those devastating moments hold the most valuable lessons and growth potential. And while it doesn't dismiss the pain, the discomfort, the fear, and the fallout that much of society is feeling right now, it is those those experiences they're the formula for the most growth. Are you a better person now? Yes. And loading. And loading. I love that. And loading. <laughs> I, I think sometimes the reason why I ask that question is oftentimes when you reflect back on these major hardships, it probably or invariably maybe is a better way of saying it is what I hear from everybody is, you know, gosh, while it, it was not fun to go through that process, 
you know, I am a much better person and I probably would not have arrived where I am had I not gone through these challenges. A hundred percent. I wouldn't change any of it. And I was so busy feeling like a victim and acting like a victim that I was abusing so many people around me. And it really provided this perspective of, of all, you know, there's a ton of narrative, um, out there where it's, you're a victim or you're, you're there an abuser. And it really brought it into focus for me that, oh, we're kind of both, <laughs> we're kind of both at the right. same time. Right. And that really normalized how being human is so messy and, um, being able to experience and see both sides. And I'm so grateful. So we all tend to experience both sides. I don't know, think we all necessarily see that. So to, to be on the other end of seeing that and seeing myself and taking responsibility for, you know, choice. It, it, when you start to realize there's a choice, no matter what's going on around you, I think that's when you truly get your power back. And, and it's, it's about choice. It's not about reacting to our emotions or our feelers. It's about slowing down and realizing you have a choice aside from all of those things. So how are you going to handle and navigate what's in front of you by choice or by reaction? Right. I think I've often said that choice is the greatest gift we have been given because I see it just in my own life where it's like I can choose what I do. I can choose how I show up. I can cho choose how I react to a situation. I can choose. And the fact that we have choice, once again, is the greatest gift that I think God has given us. I think that's awesome, Mike. Thanks for sharing that with me. What about life now? Like on a scale of one through 10, how would you rate your life? Man, my life is a 10. That's pretty awesome. It is. I mean, it's, it's awesome because Jesus, I mean, um, out of all the interviews that I've done, your story was probably the hardest to unpack because it wasn't like a linear, like something bad happened in 2013. You know, it was a shitty three months and then life was great. It was like, no, no, no. <laughs> like I had past trauma before 2013. It manifested itself when I had a kid. I was on medication. I did a little better. And then boom, it really hit in 2017. And then I hit rock bottom in 2018. And it is amazing just to hear where you are now. And it's a testament to you making the right choices. And it's also a testament to the fact that it sounds like you've got, you know, incredible, an incredible family. Like you talked about your mom, you talked about your incredible husband, your kids. It's uh, really nice to hear where you're at. Thank you. I, I am beyond grateful and beyond blessed to have every single person here and really we're thriving together. I feel so fortunate. Life, life is really great. And even when something hard comes, that gratitude is still there. And, and I think that's the beauty of going through challenging times. Yeah. And I think the, the fact that you said, I'm glad what happened happened. I wouldn't change anything I think is so important because it is, in my opinion, impossible to create a great life without going through difficult things. Now you probably had more than your fair share, but 
when somebody is looking at something really difficult, just, just reflect on this story. And if Katie could make it, you know, you can make it if you're listening to this and going through something difficult. Katie, I want to end with one final question. And it's the focus of the podcast, Time to Sing Your Song. Shared before that I I came up with that name because I am a big believer in learning from the power of personal story, people that have been, you know, really knocked on their ass. And Jesus, you are. But you're living now a, a 10 life, which is fantastic. So when you reflect on your journey, is there a song, an artist, a genre, something that comes to mind that brings to life the journey that you were on and where you're at now? Oh, definitely. Um, Recovery by James Arthur. It was a powerhouse song for me, um, especially when I needed to put my shoes and my headphones on <laughs> and go running. I love James Arthur. So what in particular about that song made you pick it? It, it, it discusses how you're, you build your own recovery. You, you are the artist of your life, even when it's hard. What a great place to end. Katie, thank you so much. I mean, this was brutally raw. Um, hopefully you're comfortable with everything that you shared, but I, I really appreciate it. I think, you know, through your vulnerability, through you sharing your story, there's a lot of people out there, as we all know, that are dealing uh, with postpartum depression and psychosis and and addiction and trauma from the past. And you laid it all out there and you are a beacon for hope for many. So Katie, thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. And thank you for the space and for the opportunity for me to share my story so it can help others. Katie, thank you so much. I am grateful that you are open to sharing everything that you have gone through over the last decade. Your story is really going to help a lot of people who feel broken and lost. If you like my conversation with Katie, go back to past episodes to hear other amazing stories of people who were once lost or broken and now are singing their song. Big thank you to everyone who listens to Time to Sing Your Song and being part of this community I am building. My goal is to help everyday people like you and me use the hard times as a catalyst to create a life that we were all meant to live. Until next time, start singing your song today because as the anonymous quote goes, tomorrow comes, this day will be gone forever. In its place is something that you have left behind. Let it be something good. <laughs>